become misfortune. <laughs> I'm watching you. Hey guys, welcome to episode 44 of Macabre Misfortunes. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. I forgot if we uh, announce our names on this episode or not. I don't know. Because like we don't on shorts, but then we do on the Sunday night episodes. And now I've completely lost memory of whether we do or not. I'm sure it doesn't matter either way. Well, Tracy, many people will know the song Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley. That song makes me cry. Well, it's so it, beautiful. It's by far the best known version of this song, but it was originally written and recorded by Leonard Cohen back in 1984. Okay. Did not know it went that far back. And for anybody who hadn't heard it, it's it's kind of crucial to know the song because we're going to be talking about the artist Jeff Buckley mm-hmm. in this episode. So real quick, I just have like a 40 second clip of the, just in case people haven't heard it that I'm going to play right now. a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord but you don't really care for music do you well it goes like this the fourth, the fifth the minor fall and the major lift the baffled king composing Alright, so like I was saying, the song had came out 10 years earlier, but Jeff Buckley was the one who actually made it famous with his version that came out at 1994. Most may not know how tragic Jeff Buckley's story is, so what's what we're going to discuss today. Jeffrey Scott Buckley was born in November 17, 1966. Now, music was definitely in his blood. His mother was Mary Gilbert, and she was a classically trained pianist. Nice. His father was Tim Buckley, and he was a singer who actually released the first of his nine albums the year that Jeff was born. That's not the only thing he did the the year that Jeff was born. He also left the family. Oh, no. So, yeah, Tim was an absent father, and, and he actually left the same year that Jeff was born. Jeff said that he never knew his dad. He met him one time when he was eight years old. He went to visit him, and his dad was working out in his room and was so busy that he didn't even get a chance to talk to him. He saw him, and that was it. Aw, that's terrible. Two months later, Tim Buckley died of a heroin overdose. No. So Jeff was primarily raised by his mom and his stepfather, a gentleman by the name of Ron Moorhead. He even took Moorhead's last name for a short period of time. So up to about the age of 10, he actually went by Scott Moorhead. Mm-hmm. 
Now, despite all this, Jeff couldn't entirely escape his father's shadow. Like both of his parents, Jeff loved music, and it seemed to be a talent that was pretty natural to him. He went on to attend the L.A. Music Institute. He was invited to play at a concert tribute to his father in New York, and Jeff agreed to go. Now, you might be thinking, I would think that maybe he had a huge dislike for his dad because he wasn't there, and why would he go perform, you know, at a tribute for his dad? But Jeff actually was bothered that he hadn't been to his father's funeral and that he never had been able to tell his father anything. So, therefore, he used the tribute show to pay his final respects to his father. Gotcha. I wonder why he didn't go to the funeral. Well, I mean, he was eight at the time. It, or, uh, yeah, he was eight at the time that happened, so mm-hmm. he may not have had a say in the matter. Oh, well, I guess that's true. Now, him showing up and performing at this tribute show turned out to be a pretty fateful decision. He wowed the music industry types that were in the audience for this thing. And, you know, I'll I'll be honest with you. I don't know who his dad is by name. It sounds semi-familiar. But if we put out nine albums and then, like, ten years later, they're putting on a tribute to him, he must have actually had some stuff that we would know about. Definitely. But anyway, the Sony executives that were in the audience actually signed him, and they released his first album called Grace in 1994, and then he hit the road. This album is the album that had Hallelujah on it. So he toured for about three years on this album, and then Sony wanted him to start recording his next record. You wouldn't think that would be that big of a deal, but Jeff was on edge and completely scared to death to make this second album. I wonder why. I don't know. The task just actually terrified him, and I think it was the pressure of having to put out something that competes with his dad. No, I think competed with the first one because the oh. first one was a success. And yeah. I think he was just like, you know, a lot of people, when it comes to music, a lot of bands have really good first albums and then they struggle after that. But that's because a lot of times they've been working on that first album technically for six, seven, eight, nine years. Well, I can understand all those, that. I all mean, those years of heaven and you get your big break and you got sure. all these songs. Then all of a sudden you got to come up with another album in two years. Well, I can understand that. I mean, I'm sure that pressure was there. He was feeling a lot of pressure. He was really going through a lot of changes in his life. He'd actually just had his 30th birthday. He was pretty upset and, and shaking at one point because he said he just wanted to be as good as his father. Oh, I thought maybe he was upset because he just turned 30. No. Now I was going to say, wait till he turned 40. That's when it all happens. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeff then goes to Memphis, Tennessee to record his second album. It was tentatively going to be called My Sweetheart the Drunk. Well, if nothing else, the title should have captured your attention. Right. But tragedy was about to strike. Oh. And I'll tell you about that right after this quick sponsor break. On May 29th, 1997, after failing to find the building where they were supposed to be rehearsing with the band, he and his roadie, Keith Foti, drove down to a channel of the Mississippi River called Wolf River Harbor. Despite the fact that there was trash that was littered all over the riverbanks, Jeff still, wearing his jeans and his shirt and combat boots, walked into the water. 
Fody warned him several times, but Jeff just kept walking farther and farther out, singing Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. What in the world is going through his mind? A small boat kind of zoomed by in the darkness. I did mention that it was dark. Oh. It goes by and Fody yelled out to Jeff. He's like, hey, get out of the way. But then a bigger boat came by and Fody actually had to turn around uh, away from the river because they had a boom box out on the, the you know, edge of the water. Uh-huh. And he knew when that big boat came by, that wave oh, was going to come up and it was going to get. So he turned around to move the boom box. And when he turned back around, there was no sign of Jeff. Aww. So, a few days later, on June 4th, Buckley's body was spotted by a passenger on a riverboat called the American Queen. Hmm. His body was identifiable by his purple beaded navel ring that he had in. Jeff Buckley was 30 years old at the time of his death. Now, there were some obvious questions about this. Was he drunk or was he high at the time of his death? When the Shelby County Medical Examiner released the toxicology report, it was confirmed that Jeff Buckley died by accidental drowning. Though he had been drinking, the report found that he had a very low alcohol content Mm -hmm. and absolutely no drugs in his system whatsoever. So literally he was just happy. He was happy. But you're going to see there's a little more to the story than that uh, that brings up more questions. Now, his family was obviously confused because there was thoughts about, well, was it suicide or was, you know, what was it? Why did he just walk in the water? He seemed to be acting a little bit weird. You don't mm-hmm. just walk in the water with combat boots and Night. Yeah, all yeah. that and stuff on. Um, so them saying that, they're, okay, so now there's no drugs, there's no really alcohol. So what the hell happened there? It didn't answer all the questions. Why was he acting so strange on the day of his death, and did he have suicidal tendencies? Now, according to Jeff's manager, David Lorry, Jeff had been acting erratically in the weeks leading up to his death. For example, he was trying to buy a house that wasn't for sale. He was also trying to buy a car that wasn't for sale. And he unexpectedly proposed to his girlfriend, Joan. So, this were, these were things that they said um, were definitely uncharacteristic for him. But yeah, here was the icing. On the, yeah. Here was the icing on the cake. He applied to be a butterfly keeper at the Memphis Zoo. Well, I'll be dang. So it just sounded like he had a whole other life he wanted to live all of a sudden or something. You know what I'm saying? So you combine all that with the day that he died and... The fact that he couldn't even find the location where his band was supposed to be practicing. So, hey, I can't find the location, so let's just go down the Mississippi River. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really bizarre. You know, there was something distinctly strange going on. Now, is it possible that he might have cracked under the pressure doing that second album? So, was possibly he might have been suicidal? Maybe he walked in there and was happy because he had made his decision. Some people have that relief when they accept Mm -hmm. what's going to happen. In 1993, this was four years before his death, he made a comment to the New York Times in an article that, I'm sick of this world, I'm trying to stay alive. That was four years earlier. The manager, or his manager, Lori, said that 
He thinks that death was somewhat of a mystery. He said, I don't really know if it makes sense, but he didn't mean for it to happen, but he didn't fight it either. It's not your fault. It's okay to let go. So he thinks maybe it's like he wasn't trying to drown out there, but once it started happening, he was like, oh, well, yeah, well. So what about the second album? Well, Jeff's mother learned shortly after his death that Sony planned on releasing the tapes. Did they have the whole album done? Yes, for the most part. But um, Jeff was not happy with what he had recorded. And he had planned on re-recording a bunch uh-huh. of that. His mom said that they found Jeff's body and they had two memorial ceremonies in July and August. She went home and she started getting calls from band members saying, why are you going ahead with the album? Like I said, Jeff never wanted those tapes released. Mm-hmm. He actually wanted them burned, blah, blah, blah. He didn't like the guy that they were working with on the album. Oh, okay. As far as the uh, uh, producer. She said she once she heard this, she was like, wait, nobody's going to do anything. So she did some checking around, and she found out that Sony did plan on releasing the tracks that Jeff wanted to re-record. Well, you know they're not going to wait on it. I mean, somebody oh, just, somebody just, just died. They mm-hmm. can, that's when people, you know, people buy stuff just because right. of that. Yeah. So that's kind of a good time if you're looking at record sales mm-hmm. for them to release something. So she goes and gets an attorney and she sends a cease and desist letter. I mean, does she, does she know herself that he hated the album and wanted to redo it? I think so, yeah. Okay. She told Sonny that she wanted one thing. She wanted total control and they would do it together. She reached a compromise, and My Sweetheart the Drunk was released at the end of 1997 as a two-disc album. It contained both the uh, Tom Verlaine release tracks that he didn't like, but they had reworked them a little bit, and they actually had some tracks that Jeff had made himself. How could you rework something when he's not there? They could rework the music part. Oh, the music part? Yeah, they, don't, they can't rework the vocals. Yeah. But, but they could add overdubs or something like that hmm. without somebody being there. They just got to redo the, you know, yeah. isolate the track. Now, for Jeff, it was always about the music. Remember I told you about that piece that was in the New York Times where we referenced earlier where he said that he was just kind of tired of it all, tired yeah. of it all. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, when someone puts out an album... They start only playing the big places. I hope I never end up like that. No way. He also said, this isn't a different uh, story it wouldn't in the New York Times, but he said, I don't really need to be remembered. I hope that the music is remembered. Bless his heart. But that's the story of Jeff Buckley. Aw. Bless his heart. So I would say most people has no clue who he is, mm-hmm. but they might know that song. That song to me is just, I mean, it hits you in your soul. It really does. Wow. What a sad story. But if you actually go listen to some of his music, his, his music is is actually pretty really good. good. Especially if you go listen to the first album, Grace. Mm-hmm. You can tell there's definitely a difference between that one and that and that second album. But he's a very talented musician. And to to be dead at thirty years old, and nobody really kind of know. Yeah, what a shame. What happened? Mm-hmm. But well, well, maybe at least he got to meet his dad finally. Maybe you know? so. 
Wow. Very right, interesting. Guys, that wraps up this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. I did. So, well, that's all that really matters. <laughs> Bye, guys.